want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Page 835, if you're going to use a, a pew Bible. And uh, I want to take you back a, a little bit from my memory lane. When I, back in the summer of 87, I, was, I know way back in 87, that was the summer in between my junior and my senior year of high school. And um, I, I really didn't have much of a heart for the church. I was really kind of hurt by the church, hurt by the Christian school. And it, it just left a bad taste. And so as a Christian school kid, I made a friend with all, of all people, a public school kid. I know, I know, they're, they're rough. And uh, this public school kid, his name was Doug, and Doug attended a, a church in town, and uh, he invited me that summer to go on a road trip with him and his church to a place I had never gone to before. And the second that he told me where it was, was the second that I was sold. He didn't have to tell me what we were going to be doing there. He didn't have to give me any information on how much it cost. I was going to make sure it happened. And you got to understand, I was born and raised in the middle of Iowa. That's the context. He said, my church is going to Colorado, to Rocky Mountain High in Estes Park, Colorado. And I'm going, are you serious? Your church has a youth event in Estes Park, Colorado. I've never seen anything but corn and gently rolling hills. And so my heart was excited about, I had this opportunity to go see mountains of all things. I've only seen them in National Geographics. I've only seen them in postcards. I've only seen them on TV. These amazing mountains. I've seen, heard stories about people who have climbed these mountains and done all these different things, but I've never experienced the Rockies. And so we got on. My second experience was riding a coach bus. An amazing experience for a farm boy, but we took this coach bus. It started off very anticlimactic because the first state after Iowa you have to go through is Nebraska. I, I think in, in God's wisdom, it was intentional that he put Nebraska before the Rockies. As we were driving, the boredom just set in of going through Nebraska and just going through. It's just nonstop. You can see probably 100 miles ahead of you in Nebraska. And I remember the moment as this high school, soon to be a senior, looking out the windows, just waiting for the first Rocky Mountain and only seeing foothills. And I remember asking, so are those the Rockies? And no, no, no. Those are just the foothills. You've got to be kidding. These things are huge. They're magnificent. Finally, seeing the Rockies, my heart raced as I'm seeing these magnificent, snow-capped, jagged mountains going up through these different passes on a coach bus was scarier than heck. You're seeing these edges, and this bus could go down any second down these, these huge hills. And I'll never forget, we got up towards the top, getting closer and closest to Estes Park, and remembering seeing as it was snowing, and then raining, and then snowing, seeing a rainbow from one mountaintop to the next. 
and hearing our bus full of high schoolers break out and sing the doxology. It was bizarre. High schoolers. We were caught up in a moment of worship, in seeing God's amazing work in creation. And we begin to wonder, why are there millions in our culture, millions and millions of these mood posters that are filled with scenographic mountains with these pithy philosophical sayings on the bottom of them? Why, why, are the, why is there a multi-million dollar industry selling scenic cruises and tours? People will pay dollars and dollars and dollars to go on these cruises, to go somewhere warm like Florida, to enjoy the beauty of an ocean, to pick up seashells. Why is that deep within us? Why is there even a multi-million dollar industry of coffee table books that are filled with glossy pictures of mountains and streams? I think the reason is, the answer is, because the essence of our humanness has an appetite for beauty. Deep in our souls, an appetite, a deep desire for beauty. To put it in a more God-centered way, I believe that God has made us to hunger to worship him. A deep hunger. And the great tragedy of the human race is we were made to find infinite joy and infinite beauty in admiring God But we have become so blind and so foolish that we spend time and energy and money and resource seeking out everything in the world to satisfy our insatiable hunger to admire greatness and beauty. Every single person here knows that all those things, that the tours, the posters, the postcards, all those things do not fill our hearts, don't satisfy us deeply. They give us some pleasure and they make, might make us our life a little bit more bearable. We might be able to get through another week with a vacation in the Rockies or a vacation by the ocean or a vacation by the cottage. It might just get us through for a little bit longer, but it does not last. They can never compare to the times when you, you walk to the window and raise the blinds and open the shutters and see the mountainous glories of a risen Christ. If your life is flat like Nebraska, without exhilaration, without significance, without a single fulfilling orientation, it's probably because you do not see the risen Christ for who he really is. Some of you scarcely see him at all, perhaps. Others have such a pitifully small and sentimental picture of him in the wall of your mind that you are really starving for the real thing. So what I want to do for us today is I want to take you to the window of God's word. And I want you to point you towards Christ. For if, if we can keep in view the risen Christ as he really is, our bottomless appetite for beauty and greatness and wonder could find its satisfaction and our lives would be of unending joy and joyful obedience. So I want you to follow with me. And I want you to see some powerful things here. Looking at Matthew 28. 
We're going to break it into two sections. One through ten and then sixteen to the end. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and he came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes, clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. And some doubted. But Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord the last chapter of Matthew is a window that opens onto the sunrise of Christ's resurrection. And through it, you can see at least using the the Rocky Mountains picture, through that window, you can see at least three massive peaks of Christ's character. And the first is, you can see the peak of his power. The peak of his power. You can see also the peak of his kindness. And lastly, you will see the peak of his purposefulness. All, we all know in our hearts that if the risen Christ is going to satisfy our desire to admire greatness, that is the only way he has to be. He has got to be powerful. He has got to be kind. He has got to be purposeful. People are who are too weak to accomplish their purposes cannot satisfy our desire to admire greatness. We admire people even less who have no real purpose in life. Think about people in your life who just are just kind of walking through life without meaning. They are hard people to admire. And even less those whose purposes are merely selfish and unkind. What we long to see and we long to know is a person whose power is unlimited, whose kindness is tender, and whose purpose is single and unflinching. We must see 
and worship the risen Christ. So I want to show you why I think Matthew 28 aims to help us do that. In Matthew, Jesus makes two appearances of, uh, after his resurrection. First to the women in verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, I love this, greetings, <laughs> greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And second appearance was to the 11 disciples in Galilee, verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him and some doubted. It seems clear that Matthew wants to say to us that a proper response to the risen Christ is what? Worship. That's the only proper response. When we see and acknowledge him as the risen Christ, the only proper response is for us to worship him. Matthew opens this window unto the glory of Christ and he means it to be a window for our worship. And don't miss how astonishing this really is. If you remember three years before, Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Three years before. And in Matthew 4, he said, this, this whole dialogue goes on. Satan says to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Do you see that it implies that Jesus receives the worship of his people in Matthew 28? The resurrection of Christ should certify once and for all that Jesus is the Son of God. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And when he rises from the dead, men and women bow at his feet and worship him. And he receives it without a rebuke. Easter is a great day for reaffirming our conviction that Jesus is no mere man. He's no mere creature. He's no mere angel. But from, ever to ever, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. Through whom and for whom all things exist. Everything exists. And therefore, he is worthy of our worship. Therefore, Matthew calls us to worship the risen Christ and not to shrink back. Matthew means for chapter 28 to be a window to see Christ for who he really is. And he aims it for a window of worship. Now, what do we do when we see the mountain range of Christ's character, his power, his kindness, and his purposefulness. First thing we see is this peak of power. Notice in verse 18 where Jesus says, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. I wish there was a way that words could describe what this really means. The gravity of this statement. you got to understand that you should, and you need to feel that the risen Christ has more authority, Americans, than President Obama and all the presidents that preceded him and all the presidents that will come after him. He has more authority than all presidents in America combined. And on top of that, he has more power and authority than all the nations of, that are part of the United Nations that work together for the purposes of peace he has more powerful power than all of them combined. And if you would gather 
all their authority. Somehow you could gather all their authority and all their power together and put them on a scale with the power of the risen Christ. Christ would plummet to the ground and send them flying. He has all authority and all power. It's all been given to him. All authority on earth has been given to the risen Christ. All of it. The risen Christ has the right to tell every man, every woman, every child on this planet what they should do, how they should think, and how they feel. He has absolute and total authority over your life. He has absolute and total authority over every city, over every state, over every nation. The risen Christ is great, and he's greater than you can ever imagine. Here's our Easter witness to the world. The risen Christ is your king and has absolute, unlimited authority in your life. That's our witness. Whatever he says, I will listen and I will obey and I will do it joyfully. If you do not bow and worship him and trust him and obey him, you basically are committing high treason against Christ the king the Son of God, who is over all things. Easter is God's open declaration that he lays claim on every person, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Easter has to do with power and authority. Easter is the claim of the risen Christ on every life that breathes. Every man and woman and child here today, Christ ultimately has authority over you. He has authority over your sex life to rule. Your business is his to rule. Your career is his to rule. Your home is his. Your children are his. Your vacation is his. Your body is his. He is God. And if you seek to resist his claim and feel no admiration for his infinite power and authority and turn to finally seek satisfaction from some thrills that allow you to be master to you for you to be the lord then you will be executed for treason on that last day and it will appear as you stand before the holy god that it is such a reasonable thing and so right that you should be executed for your disloyalty to your master and redeemer that there would not even be an appeal or an objection. Your life of indifference to the risen Christ, of half-hearted attention now and then, perhaps on Easter, to a few of his commandments, will appear on that day as supremely blameworthy and infinitely foolish. And you will remember, believe it or not, you will remember this sermon and weep. Because you did not change. The risen Christ has all authority, not only on earth, but also in heaven. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I think Matthew wants us to get a glimpse of that in verses 2 and 4. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, his raiment white as snow, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. What is the meaning of this? It means 
at least that angels stand in service of the risen Christ. Angels. And I don't know what kind of pictures you have of angels. They're not, maybe you have this picture of these little fat, white, blonde, curly uh, angels that are chubby, playing a harp and sitting on a cloud. If that is your picture of what an angel is, you are going to be very disappointed. And your, your understanding of the authority and power of Christ that he even controls and commands angels will be greatly distorted. A bunch of fat little angels flying around. Come with me! Okay! You know, that, that doesn't conjure up any kind of idea of power and authority that he could command little angels. But these are God's warriors who are, are at his bidding, who, who are eternal, who are not able to die. These are God's angels. If you can imagine how powerful an angel is and how many angels there are and what it is going to be like when the Son of God rides his white stallion at the head of countless armies of heavenly angels against the mutiny of this world, then you would be impressed. And how we need to have pray for this gift of, an, of imagination so that we could feel what it means that the risen Christ is the commander and chief of countless, countless angels who are mightier than men and indestructible because of their immortality. When they gather for salvation and destruction, there are no laser beams. There are no nuclear warheads. There are no guns or technology that will have any effect on them at all. Consider just a few biblical images, the risen Christ and his angel of his of Christ and his angels, and let them shape your mental pictures. Listen to this from Matthew 24. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the tribes of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. No little chubby angels there, but these angels will gather in all those who believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and he was risen from the dead. In Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. All. Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 26, Put away your sword. Put it back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. 2 Thessalonians 1. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God and upon those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In 1 Peter 3. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and power subject to him. 
when the angel appears in Matthew 28 and descends with power, the power of an earthquake and the appearance of a lightning to announce the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the meaning is this. All authority has been given to the risen Christ. All. And thousands and thousands upon thousands of indestructible angels obey his every word. We need to understand as Christians with the risen Christ who lives within us, there's amazing power that has been given to us. Because he then says, go therefore. I have it all. Now you go. And the second peak of this mountain range of Christ's glory and his character is that we see the peak of his kindness. You cannot just have this powerful God who is just wheeling out judgments left and right and destroying humanity. You also have got to see the peak of his kindness. And I see it first in verses 5 through 10. The angel tells the the women, do not fear. Do not fear. And then in verse 7, commands them to go tell the disciples that he's risen and will meet them in Galilee. In verse 8, they ran to do just that with fear and great joy. And then a wonderful thing happens. Jesus intercepts them. Why? They were on their way to obey the angel's command. They had seen a very powerful angel. And they were, giddy up, let's go. And Jesus seems to repeat the angel's command in verse 10. Do not be afraid. After he does the greetings, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Why did he stop them? I think the answer here is because of kindness. God's kindness, pure, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing, unadulterated kindness. The unnecessary bonus from a big heart of a, of a risen Christ is kindness. Those kind of things happen when you follow the word of God. Some of you may be asking, but where is the kindness of the risen Christ? And I think Mary Magdalene would answer, where is it? When you meet Jesus Seven steps down the road of obedience. There's the kindness. He meets me on the road. But the kindness of Christ is also for his other disciples too. The angel said in verse 5, do not be afraid. But verse 8 says, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear. And Jesus meets them and says, greetings. Now, our English just sounds like, you know, it's kind of a a Dr. Spock kind of thing. Greetings. Peace be with you. Kind of thing. Just a moment of, why did he just say greetings? That's an odd thing to say. He's risen from the dead. He has all authority. And he says, greetings. But in the Greek, the beautiful thing here, it literally means rejoice. Jesus stops the women on the road and says, rejoice. Jesus is saying, be happy. Find your joy. I'm here. I'm alive. I'm risen, just like I promised. Rejoice. Find joy in me. 
Do not be afraid. Rejoice. I think if I were the women, and I, I, would, I would have been apprehensive when the angel spoke to me. Because if Jesus is really risen, and I haven't seen him yet, and you know that all authority on heaven and on earth is found in Jesus Christ, he broke the chains of death and hell, I, I would be moving. Because more than likely, and it may be happening already, Jesus is establishing his worldwide reign as the Messiah. And what would he do to turn coat disciples? What would he do? Those who deserted him in his greatest trial. Maybe there will be judgment in, in Galilee. But the risen Christ is not only powerful, he is kind beyond measure. And one word, with one word, he stills every fear that they have. The angel says, go tell his disciples. And in verse 10, Jesus says, go tell my brothers. Has anybody today ever deserted the Savior in an hour of testing? Yes. Do not despair. If you will meet him in Galilee, he will call you brother and sister. If you will go in your heart to the place of repentance, he will meet you with the words, rejoice. Do not be afraid. Rejoice. And as if that was not enough evidence of his kindness, Matthew leaves it ringing in our ears by closing the gospel with these words. Behold, I am with you always until the very end of the age. That is words of kindness from our powerful God. So the risen Christ is infinitely powerful. And the risen Christ is immeasurably kind. And now we finally see through the window of Matthew 28, the peak of his purposefulness. In order to admire and worship a risen Christ, we have to see that his power and kindness have purpose and a goal. They're just not these abstract things that hang out. There is a purpose. There is a reason behind his authority, his power, and his kindness. You can't admire someone who doesn't know where he is going or what he is doing. One of the reasons there are so few admirable people in the world is that so few people stick to anything for very long. How many people can you point to and say, there is a life that is just unwaveringly devoted to one goal. The reality is very few, if any. But verse 19 shows that the risen Christ has a purpose. He knows why he reigns. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This is Christ's purpose. The purpose of the risen Christ is to empower his church. It's to empower his church to make his authority known in every culture on the earth. That is his purpose, to empower and equip the church to make his authority known in every nook and cranny of creation. He wouldn't have said, behold, I am with you 
always unless our mission was his business. I'll be with you always. As you go, as the church, go and make disciples because I'm going to be with you at all times, in all places, in every situation, the sticky situations, the low situations, the high situations. I will be with you in all circumstances. I will be with you. So wherever, wherever people bow the knee to Christ through our witness, it is because he is with us. He aims to fill his kingdom with worshipers from Argentina and Liberia, Uganda and Ecuador, Cameroon and Mexico and the Philippines and Japan and Egypt and Brazil and just Nigeria and the greater Lincoln Way area. The risen Christ is not going around in circles and fumbling through this manual of operations of what to do. He wrote the book. Christ wrote the book and he is unswerving in his great purpose of accomplishing it. So the question has got to be, do you not hunger to admire a person like this who has infinite power, who has immeasurable kindness and unswerving purpose? Is that not the person that you want to give your entire life to? One who is great and loving and kind and has a purpose and a direction. Perhaps your beauty, your, your appetite for his beauty is just beginning. If so, confess the blindness and dullness of your former days. Set yourself on the road of faith and obedience and expect him to meet you on the way. One of my favorite hymns and I think Missio Day is becoming more of a, a hymn kind of church finding some rich songs and purposes in, in good words good songs one of my favorite songs and we've, we've sung it uh, Chris Tomlin has done his own take on it but these are some of the original words with the song crown him with many crowns listen to these words crown him with many crowns the lamb upon the throne Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Crown him the son of God before the worlds began and ye who tread where he hath trod crown him the son of man whose grief hath who every grief hath known that right rings the human breast and takes and bears them for his own that all in him may rest. Crown him the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave, who rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Crown him the Lord of heaven, enthroned in worlds above. Crown him the king to whom is given the wondrous name of love. Crown him with many crowns as thrones before him fall. Crown him, ye kings, with many crowns, 
for he is king of all. The reason that we can worship Christ is because of his power, his authority, all authority. We can worship Christ because he is kind and merciful. And that while we were yet sinners, in his kindness and his mercy, Christ died for us. And his saving us and his authority propels us to join him on his mission of sharing that good news. That is Easter. That is Easter. Easter. He has canceled the power of sin and death in our lives so that we can faithfully follow after him and make disciples of every nation. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come to you and uh, we admit that often we do not understand the authority and the power that you have in our life. In fact, we, we prefer often to be our own master, be in control of our own destiny. But we know, according to your holy scriptures, that you have all authority under you in heaven and on earth. And God, we recognize too that you are kind beyond all our human comprehension. In your mercy, you have saved us. You have redeemed us. You have lifted us out of our miry pit and put us on, onto solid ground. You have cleaned us from the inside out and you have made us children of the high God. God, that is the greatest gift of kindness that you could ever do. And Lord, then you give us purpose. You have not made us to be just mechanics or plumbers or great office people or principals or teachers or pastors. You have made us to be your messengers, to be salt and light in this world. So God, would that just ring true with us today? And may we, with our lives, crown you with many crowns. For you are the Lord of heaven. Help us, Lord, to live into the reality, the beauty of this reality. Let us live into it, God, and may we worship you with our entire lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the table, we see his power in conquering sin and death. We see his kindness in offering life for us. And we also see his purpose. For there's multiple grains of, of from this flour that makes this bread and he gathers all people from all different nations, all different places, and describes it. This is my body broken for you. We, this is a picture of Christ's purpose, even in bread. And even in the cup that is going to be poured out, 
We see his purpose in redemption and calling us to join him in that. As we come to this meal, I want to encourage you, take a moment, confess your sins. Remember the good news of Jesus Christ, that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. This is the body of Christ, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the meal, he took the cup of blessing and poured it out, saying, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Those who are serving, please come forward.